0: I watched mm-hmm. your interview with Michael Albert and Noam Chomsky.
1: What did you think of that?
0: Um, you know, I you can imagine what I think. I was a little shocked to hear Michael Albert say PMC. And I'm like, and then I, you know, I always have to remind myself that that's not just new rhetoric, but that's an old term from Barbara Ehrenreich back in the day from the New Left, right? right. That's been around for a while, um, and goes back to a James Burnham idea, right?
1: Yeah, so the, I know. The
0: managerial elite and the look. You know, yeah, real well, revolution.
1: We, so we got to talk about this the... in the parrot room because I have things to say that I don't want to say in the for everybody. The death of God is about the drying up of a horizon of meaning and of a whole form of human life.
2: Where do we stand in the illusion it makes? What kind of space are we invited into?
0: The material relations between people become social relations between things. When we look at toasters, corn, and TVs...
1: We, don't we see still, anything. to a large extent, live in the interregnum between between worlds, if you will, or between paradigms. Not many people in the history of the world have faced that. Zero Squared is the Zero Books podcast. All right, so um Chris Catrone is back. Chris Catrone is a, a professor in art history, right? And mm-hmm. a contrarian and uh the former president of Platypus uh the Platypus affiliated Society and uh very popular on the Zero Books channel and the bane of c derek Barnes' existence and uh I'm glad to have you back, Chris. Well, you okay. know, not exactly. But <laughs> well, along with everybody else, Chris. Yes, along indeed. with everybody else. Um so uh yeah, I, I wanted to actually, on that note, before we get, jump into the essay you wrote, um, which is about Afghanistan, your essay is entitled "Afghanistan After Twenty and Forty Years." Uh, I believe that's the title, right?
2: Yes.
1: Yeah. Before we do that, though, I wanted to bring up a controversy that was that Derek Varn brought to me about platypus, and I, I, uh, I'm not trying to do a gotcha question question that's right okay. off the start, uh-huh. but it is a gotcha question, maybe. Um, okay. Uh, one of your members, and I forget the name of the member, is working for the Claremont Institute, um, which is a right wing think tank.
2: Um, uh,
0: yeah. So this is um, Wyatt Verlin. Right. And he's a very young man. Uh, mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, it's, it's kind of a college summer internship. And, right. And uh, he went and, and did his stint and came back and said uh, very dramatically, the right is even worse than the left.
1: Oh, really? <laughs>
0: yeah, they're yeah. even more sectarian and more more ridiculous and more absurd and more intellectually narcissistic than the left is. And I thought, well, that's saying that's... something. <laughs> yeah, you know, right. I mean, yeah. I, you know, because uh, and I said, you know, my response to it, this was at a, a dinner party of Platypus members. He had just come back, you know, relatively recently from the summer internship, And I said, you know, it might be a problem with intellectuals, right? And intellectuals Mm -hmm. in politics, that that, um, intellectuals treat political issues as, like, their own sort of ideas and, you know, their own sort of personal property at the level of of ideas and ideology. Mm -hmm. And that that is in and of itself um, problematic. And, you know, and of course, you know, the right in some ways might be even worse than the left, in being undisciplined, you know, the right can fall back on the power of the status quo, the power of the existing social relations. And so it doesn't really need terribly much any kind of organizational discipline, whereas the left has to have organizational discipline in order to uh, affect reality because it's trying to change reality. It's not, it's not relying upon the power of reality the way the right is.
1: Right. Um, uh, Well, one of the things about the Claremont Institute uh, that uh, was, I took note of, and actually uh, Verlin approached me to write for a publication that they were putting out and um, I thought it over and the money just wasn't good enough for me to, take the hit but uh, also um
0: oh i'm sure it's just a nominal fee in other words um, right you know it's like a typical writer's fee for like an article which is paltry
1: right it was nothing but that wasn't okay. the real reason the real reason was i had put out a video about christopher lash and uh-huh. the family right and i was being asked to write for the claremont institute uh about christopher lash and you know uh, uh, I think Christopher Lash is a contested figure. Mm-hmm. Like there are, There's a conservative interpretation of Lash, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and there's a left-wing interpretation of Lash, and the conservative interpretation is winning.
0: Well, you know, uh, the, the other thing about the right is that they can kind of make use of anything, right? Mm-hmm. They're sort of free to, like, you know, appropriate, make use of anything. And, um, you know, I mean, in other words... Marxism has been used by the right it's called Stalinism
2: right <laughs> right no,
0: you know I mean the, the truth of the matter is is that you know Stalinism was a massive capitulation of Marxism to the power of the status quo you could also mm-hmm. say so- social democracy is that and right. uh, Marxist ideas have been used to justify that so the right can use anything there's nothing that they can't use because they use it opportunistically they're not yeah. they're not constrained by principle
1: well I think if you if you include social d- social democracy as part of the right, then perhaps uh, Christopher Lash was on the right.
2: Sure. I think that he was. Um, In that that sense. He
0: was. Now, let's let's back it up a second, right? So Christopher Lash is interesting as like a dissenting voice in the era of the new left. Right. And, you know, the new left and the new right are parallel phenomena. Uh, You Mm -hmm. can't really understand one without the other. They both come out of the same thing, which is the crisis of the Democrats' New Deal coalition.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: And so the new right, you know, neoconservatives, neoliberals, even the Christian fundamentalists migrated from the New Deal coalition to the Republican Party. They were originally part of the New Deal coalition. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then, you know, have a different kind of edge, like, like religious fundamentalism has a different edge, you know, starting in the 60s um, than it had previously. That's around the world. And, you know, what one could say is that the right, the new right and the new left are both phenomena of the breakup of the old capitalist paradigm, the post-war capitalist paradigm. And mostly, you know, the new right comes out of the Democratic Party. Um, You know, the neolibs and the neocons are, you know, I mean, there are different flavors of neoconservatives, of course, but a a good portion of them, you know, like a Daniel Patrick Moynihan type Mm -hmm. is like a kind of a neoliberal and, you know, obviously just a Democrat and, you know, discontent with uh, the great society, dis- discontent with the uh, limitations of the New Deal that were made manifest and the fraying of the New Deal Electoral co- Coalition and its its transformation by the inclusion of black voters after uh, after, you know, the voting rights uh, restrictions were, lim- were lifted. Um, and so it's, you know, it's a complex Phenomenon. Christopher Lash, though, you know, I read him back in the day. Adolf Reed told me to read Christopher Lash. I hadn't really heard of Christopher Lash, and Adolf Reed really promoted him very strongly to me, Mm -hmm. um, you know, on, uh, you know, narcissism and the agony of the left. Now, he did warn me, Adolf did warn me, well, watch out for Haven in a Heartless World, and, um, you know, the true and only heaven, you know, that there is a kind of unmistakable... You know, drift to the right. Although even there, there are some still left-wing sentiments. And uh, although I'm not terribly like familiar with it, off the top of my head, Lash was also very much concerned with the old Socialist Party of America and its history, as a road not taken. So Lash is interesting. He is. I mean, right-wing thinkers. And this is not to like you know slam him. But if we just say, okay, he's, he, he makes a kind of a conservative turn, um, right-wing thinkers are interesting because they can, you know, express things. And, you know, it's a, it's a matter of how you take them, right? And so, I, I mean, I think someone like Wyatt, you know, member of Platypus, he is seeking after, and there are a bunch of people seeking after, not in Platypus, outside of Platypus, like the Bellows. You know mm-hmm. some kind of right-left convergence. You know, and I think Angela Nagel, didn't she uh, write for that uh, new kind of Trumpist Hegelian conservative journal, American? I know. United.
1: Yeah, yeah. Okay, I didn't know they were Hegelian. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. Much. They have this thing about like the labor ethic. Like they're they're very aware of what Hegel's about.
1: They're mm-hmm. like,
0: you know, we need we need uh, to go back to Hegel because Hegel understood the true basis of the society. Right. Right. And which he did. Right. And, um, you know, so we're just living in a period, the end of neoliberalism, the end of neoconservatism um, of ideological realignment. I mean, realignment makes it more coherent than it really is. What it is, is a sort of exhaustion of uh, the ideology of the preceding 50 years, new left and new right ideology, neoliberal and neoconservative ideology. And, you know, it's going to kind of take on a new configuration, more or less opportunistically, largely based on what the capitalist parties do. Right. The intellectuals follow the parties. And, you know, who knows what use they might make of whatever, you know, lash Marx, Marx. I mean, you know, Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, there was a time when I know that Tucker Carlson staff was uh, researching me and thinking of having me on. Right. Because he Hmm. likes to have these sort of socialists on not only to argue against them, but to say, well, if you really meant what you say, if you weren't just a Democrat, I would totally support what you're saying. Right. Right. And, you know, which is very confused, of course. Um, But again, you know, Carlson's not not, uh, you know, held to any kind of scruples. No, he's an opportunist
1: like anybody else on the on the right.
0: On the right. uh, And the opportunist doesn't mean like. I mean, I'm sure that he thinks that he's very principled. Right. Right. And so opportunist, it's its a its a measure r- with regard to capitalism. Right. In other words, it's a very peculiar Marxist notion of opportunism. It's not just sort of rank uh, scrupulousness or something. You know, it's just these people at a very fundamental level accept capitalism. They do. You know, mm-hmm. um, and that that goes for a lot of nominally anti-capitalist
1: people, too. Oh, they, almost almost all of them. Almost right. all of them, including me on some days. Right. You know, like, well, we, you know, it's like hard capitalism, right? Yeah. So, I, I, OK, I want to get to the questions about your essay. So but mm-hmm. I'm going to do that in just a second. But one more aside and then maybe we can pick up this thread in the parrot room. But mm-hmm. when you talk about conservatism uh, and uh, the desire for like a, a some sort of. Uh, i don't know mixing of left-wing principles and conservative ideas or uh, another path uh, that wouldn't be captured by the democrats that um what I'm, i i what i thought of was or my first novel. Are, are the republicans or are, or are, 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 yeah. the republicans what i thought of was my first novel which was about may 1968 and oh, i had christopher robin milne uh end up in paris in May 1968, he would have been 38 years old. So the kid from Christopher Robbins, you know, Winnie the Pooh stories. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: And I had read his biographies and he became someone who really prided himself on being a mature humanist Uh and naturalist. But and he was a he owned a bookstore. He had to struggle to kind of overcome. Not it wasn't the only thing that defined him, but he had to struggle to overcome being defined by his childhood. And being perceived Mm. by his schoolmates as this, you know, kid with long hair and and Mm. short trousers and all. Uh, But he, he fought in the second world war in Italy. He, he was, uh, so he's a serious person. And I wanted to take him and put him in May of 1968 and see if I could imagine what he would find valuable in May of 1968. What he could still, what would still redeem what was up. This was um, 2011, so and it was a what while ago. did you ago.
0: find to be what? What did you imagine would be? I,
1: I, I imagined the impulse to overcome. First of all, to, uh, the 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 one of the other characters was someone who could see the past and the present, sort of a magical realist type character. Who so he could see how the past had led up to this moment, and he could even, through some sort of vision, sometimes intervene or change things uh a bit um so what he found valuable and necessary was to change the terms of society because he was alienated from the life he was living alienated from modernity um and maybe in a in a kind of conservative way maybe even but like he the 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 trash in the river the 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 kinds of books that he was being asked to sell the the way people were approaching sex and in the new sex manuals, all of it, um, his own autistic child, which I was an invention of mine, but mm. you know, he had a, he had a, he had a uh, disabled daughter and I gave him mm-hmm. an autistic son instead. Mm-hmm. Those are all the, the reasons why he could relate to the students in the streets.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but Discontent with
1: capitalism. yeah, but, the, but the conclusion yeah. of the book is like his wife, they're back uh in in the uk they're back in their bookstore it it's turned out to be more like a uh family vacation than a life-changing event the reality the, the old reality is coming back and his wife says something to him like you know they tore up the cobblestones uh but but what they but what we can see from across the river there's an old fortress and there they they didn't have anything that they wanted to defend Mm. the way they we used to there was not a way of life that they were wanting to defend it was all they just thought if they tore up the cobblestones they could spend their days on the beach with you know french starlets and and in bikinis and stuff it was a beach Mm. of of bikinis and not the beach of the beachhead of a battle right will change right um so so that was the conclusion of the book and and now that I've said it here, I've realized, why did I have to write a whole novel to say that? But if I, in, in any case, um, uh, the point is, I think that maturity and conservatism are often conflated of dealing with uh, an understanding of the limits of life and the necessity to to build right. rather than so, just destroy.
0: Right. So I think that there are some things that the old socialist movement and old Marxism took for granted, um, which is that this is not adolescent nihilism, right? Right. That this is, this is, um, the serious business of transforming society and transformation means continuity and change. And while the, the actual change that is likely to result from overcoming capitalism will be profound. Um, We're not necessarily motivated to achieve it for just the sake of change, for the sake of profound radical change for its own Mm -hmm. sake or something. Um, In other words, you know, one of the reasons why secondary national Marxism seems so conservative to people Mm -hmm. is that it accepted the bourgeois common sense of the working class. Mm -hmm. Right. And while it was sympathetic to the nihilists of the time, you know, the anarchists, the propaganda of the deed, you know, in Russia, the Narodniks, you know, sympathetic still, it was like, that's not the way forward. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Now, I think that that's all that there is, right? There's just this kind of nihilism. And, you know, nihilism doesn't mean not believing in anything. You know, we're not talking about, like, philosophical nihilism. We're talking about political nihilism. And political nihilism is um, a kind of rejection of everything that exists in terms of it being irredeemably... Corrupted and culpable in the status quo and it's mm-hmm. it's balefulness, you know, and so it's I mean, I think, you know, Trotsky in the in the Russian Revolution, his, his history of the Russian Revolution, the 1917 revolution, mm. um, he says that the conservatism of the masses is the main driver of the revolution. Um, and, you know, it's a similar insight that Freud had in Civilization and its Discontents, which is when do you have a revolution? You have a revolution when the subaltern, the people who believe in the ruling values of the society, see the ruling class betraying those values.
2: Mm-hmm,
0: That's mm-hmm. when they overthrow them. Right. Right. In other words, you're not going to get the masses to make a revolution on the basis of some bohemian, wholly new utopian vision of society. No. Right. Right. The masses are going to rebel to save society against the depredations and corruption and follies of the ruling class that has delegitimated itself.
1: Yeah.
0: Right. So, I mean, that's just reality, right? And so, you know, we have to think about what we're trying to do politically here. Now, it is the case that keeping the flame alive of radical transformation does rely on kind of utopians and maybe Mm -hmm. some bohemian intellectual types. You know, there's there's a role for them. I mean, it's the merger formula. It's Kautsky, you know, that, that Lenin subscribed to. Um, That old style Marxism was based on and people like Eugene Debs in the United States, uh, you know, adhere to, which is the the unification of the socialist intelligentsia with the workers movement. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, the socialist intelligentsia was meant to discipline itself to the task of building up the working class into a political force that could take power. In other words, to play the necessary coordinator role. You know, I watched mm-hmm. your interview with Michael Albert and Noam Chomsky.
1: What did you think of that?
0: Um, You know, I, you can imagine what I think. So, <laughs> right, um, right. You know, like, I. The, How did I do? The, no,
1: what? We'll talk about that in the parent room. Let's let's let, did, we'll talk about did, that.
0: Yeah, you did fine. I thought that you pressed them well. I thought that was good. But, you know, the big boogeyman for them is the coordinator class, you know, that yeah. it's not good enough to replace the 1% over the 99% with 20% over 80%, right? That that's not mm. good enough uh, if you want to eliminate class society. Now, of course, the point is we're not trying to – the goal is not the elimination of class society. That's going to be a byproduct. The goal right. is to overcome capitalism. Right? Right. right. And so – Anyway, there is this coordinator class. I mean, twenty percent—that sounds like a hell of a lot of people. I am not sure. Does that mean that your like dentist is a member of the coordinator class? Like, that's not right. So, Mm. anyway, you know, but there is going to be a role for the for the so-called you know managerial, right? uh, Because you know, I was a little shocked to hear Michael Albert say PMC, and I am like, and then I, you know, I always have to remind myself that that's not just new rhetoric, but that's an old term from Barbara Ehrenreich back in the day from the New Left. Right, right. that's been around for a while um, and goes back to a James Burnham idea. Right. Yeah, you know, I know. The managerial elite and the look, you know, yeah, managerial well, revolution.
1: We, so we got to talk about that, this in the parent room because I have things to say that I don't want to say in the for everybody. And because I really want to work with Michael and I feel like he's a really nice guy. And if I can figure out how to get him to open up, we could have some fruitful uh I mean, look, debates. I'm
0: not just bothered by them, by Michael right. Albert and Noam Chomsky. Mm-hmm. I'm not. And in some ways I'm more bothered by Noam Chomsky than by Michael Albert because of the different public political role that Chomsky has to play, right? And that he Mm -hmm. plays very deliberately. Michael Albert is more, you know, of an intellectual and, you know, um, and less given to like rhetorical concessions, you know? And so anyway, I mean, Obviously, I don't like their attack on Marxism. I don't like the Bakuninite attack on on Marxism. And I don't like the vilification of Lenin and of the Russian Revolution. I think that that's all just very wrong and quite pernicious. Because, you know, I think that it's a real big obstacle to starting a socialist party, which we need. And so, you know, and again... You know, they just see the Socialist Party as like some device for the coordinator class, you know, controlling the working class. And it's, it's actually supposed to be the opposite, right? I mean, insofar as it became that, you know, that is a phenomenon of failure and defeat. Now, it's a, it, it is, look, I'll just admit, it's an open question. The reason that the coordinator class argument is plausible is that the historical jury is still out on the viability of Marxism. And in some ways, the verdicts come in, Marxism failed. And it did turn out to be kind of this bureaucratic whatever, right? Um, domination yeah. of the workers, you know, whether through social democracy or through mm-hmm. Stalinism. In other words, it doesn't have to be Stalinism, it doesn't have, it doesn't have to be the gulag. It can just be the SP it can be the Socialist Party of France. You know, it can be
1: the Labor Party. Listen, I I really do want to come back to this in the program because I think there's a lot of juicy. uh, Mm -hmm. So let's go. So let's talk about your essay. Um, uh, Look, I thought your essay, which, again, was Afghanistan uh, "Afghanistan after 20 and 40 years. uh, It seemed to me to be a warning to the left to hold off on considering the withdrawal of U.S. troops from Afghanistan as a victory for the left and to be wary of the urge to embrace defeatism. Or the idea that any loss to the U.S. military power, to U.S. military power and prestige, would be a victory for socialism. Would that be at least part of what you are that arguing? That is true, in-
0: and of course, part of that is because there is no socialism, right? Right. So, in other words, if there were a significant socialist party, then perhaps any defeat by the U.S. at the hands of whomever—the Viet Minh, the Viet Cong, the uh, the Taliban, whomever might be some kind of uh, weakening vis-a-vis, you know, a socialist movement uh, of the ruling class. Right. So, so, you know, if there were a socialist party revolutionary defensism, I mean, excuse me, defeatism really defensism though. I mean, I don't know. Now we're getting into some like very esoteric stuff,
1: which, well, is, go ahead and explain the difference. What's the well, difference? What is really defeatism is... and what is defensism?
0: Defeatism is more about inter-imperialist warfare, right? So if the U.S. went to war with the EU tomorrow, then socialists in the U.S. and in the EU would both be obligated to be defeatists. Defensists are, you know, we want to defend Afghanistan against the imperialists. right? Just straight up, right? And Which is different, right? In other words, it's it, it goes beyond defeatism. It's really defensism meaning that socialists in Afghanistan would fight to defend Afghanistan. Right. Right. Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't want the defeat of the Taliban, I guess. Mm -hmm. Right. And, you know, but the era that, that, that those programs came from uh, was different. Um, you know, uh, I was reminded recently of, uh, the, film Reds, but by, by Warren Beatty. Yeah. And if you recall, he's alienated from the third international on a, uh, trip to a conference, uh, that's, that's held in like, it might be Baku. I don't know if it's the Baku Congress or not. Um, but he's alienated by the Allahu Akbar and the death to, you know, us and the burning of uncle Sam and effigy by these Muslims. Right. And it, mm-hmm. you know, I was thinking, okay, this is, it's about Iran. Actually, it's about the Iranian revolution, which is contemporaneous mm-hmm. with the film being made
2: mm-hmm.
0: and, you know, but so it's very much preoccupied with its own moments and not really about the past, mm-hmm. but I was thinking about, you know, the original red green Alliance, if you will, the greens being the Muslims, right? At the Third International, um, you know, being in favor of the rising of the Muslim world against colonial imperialism. Mm-hmm. And, you know, does that mean that the communists like supported Islamists? No. No. Right. Um, however, right. Any more than uh, communists or Marxists would support secular nationalists either and so-called right. left nationalists. Right, so there is a difference between like defensism, defeatism, support. Right now, mm-hmm. the the real issue is what's the alternative to the United States in the world?
1: Right, right, right.
0: Um, so, mm-hmm. and and also, it's not even about the alternative to the United States, right? So, in Afghanistan, I mean,
1: well, I want to jump here and ask oh, a question to clarify yeah, yeah, what you mean by that. So, um, the the one of the problems that i experienced as part of the anti-war movement in early days was that there was an abdication of being political it was like direct like there was a vote we are not a political organization we're not going to be critiquing or suggesting policies we are a pacifist organization decrying war on the basis of that of, of on the basis of the necessity for peace uh-huh. um So a moral stance was what all that the people thought they could take at first. But what that meant was not only that um, they couldn't conceive of a strategy for intervening to stop the war that would be powerful enough to actually succeed or even attempt such a thing. I mean, they couldn't even lobby. Right. Uh, uh, But they as a uh, self-limitation. Right. As a self-limitation. But also it meant that they couldn't understand why the war was happening. Because there was no motive for political thinking. This is
0: after 9-11?
1: This is after 9-11. Uh-huh. This is uh, 2002. This is right around the time of the invasion of Afghanistan.
2: Uh-huh.
1: uh-huh. Um, uh, right before and after. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, and you know, look, it, it was understandable in that moment as to why people were behaving in a cowardly way. Because the sentiment in the street, even amongst people who were supposedly on the left, was that... We absolutely had to invade Afghanistan or defend ourselves, and this was not Vietnam, and we could not, you know, if you were against the invasion of Afghanistan at that moment, like I remember getting chased out, or not really chased out, but yelled at at, at, in a a, uh, hippie coffee shop. By a guy with long hair and you know, <laughs> like, like you know, it, 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 who looked like he would have been an ally, but who was not. He told me I was a traitor and a terrorist sympathizer and for like a, for saying for come, yeah, come to our Peach Valley against the invasion of Afghanistan.
2: I mean, um, let me let me say. But
1: but the point I make is they cannot. So like we have to ask mm-hmm. the question now, twenty years out. Got what on. was America doing? after 9 11, what it was, and how does this role that you were about to talk, discuss, how does that inform our, why it did what it did and, and what is it doing now? You know?
0: Right. So, um, in my article, I mentioned Adolf Reed and I haven't been able to dig up the article in which he wrote this. It's the other in the nation or the progressive, but I mm-hmm. did find a reference to it in another article. Um, in the New York Observer, of all places, um, kind of ca- a caddy article about the left in Afghanistan from 2001, from October of 2001, you know, where, so Adolf, you know, said, well, you know, of course, we're against all imperialist adventures, but the workers aren't going to understand being against, uh, you know, doing something about 9-11, right? So he said, you know, it should be limited to a police action, you know, right. after those who are, who are responsible, And, you know, it shouldn't be allowed to turn into a new crusade on the war, you know, war on terror, which, of course, it was inevitably going to be. And uh, so, you know, and I thought at the time, well, this is a little bit lame because it's kind of like, okay, you're supporting the war on conditions, you know, of your own political conditions. And nobody's listening to you. So it doesn't matter. And I mean, nobody's listening to the left anyway. But let's let's back it up a second to the moral moral issue, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Which is, you know, pacifism is problematic because it's moralistic. Yeah, I guess so. I mean, on the one hand what I want to say is two things that will appear to contradict each other. I want to say pacifism is a legitimate position, which is that all war is is illegitimate. Right? Mm-hmm. On the one hand, right? On the other hand, and you know, the point of the matter is that capitalist politicians will also talk about war being illegitimate and being only a necessary evil. On the other hand, on a moral level, right, um, the Taliban and Al-Qaeda deserved what it got from the United States. But also the United States on a moral level deserved to be defeated by the Taliban,
1: Right. right. Well, so and the, like, OK, so on know, a moral level know. at the time, what I was what I talked about when I talked about things on a moral level was the people in Afghanistan who are already suffering from a famine and and who needed aid just to survive, who were now having that aid disrupted and having their lives even even further disrupted by bombs that weren't going to do anything to protect the United States from future terrorist attacks, I didn't think. But only make conditions worse there.
0: Oh no! I mean, the tactics of the Taliban are really
1: exorable. Um, tactics- hold, hold on one second, Chris. Okay. Yeah, I'm I'm recording a podcast. What's up? Okay, well, go on the other side, my kid.
0: Uh-huh. Uh huh. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to say about like the tactics of the Taliban are exorable, and the tactics of the United States are, are if anything. As bad, maybe maybe not as bad, you know. At least in like ostensible purpose, but in actual fact, so you know. Okay, about like humanitarianism and humanitarian intervention, right? Like, so that my former comrades, the Spartacists, so they said something about the Haitian earthquake back in the day. You know, the, mm-hmm. the big earthquake that that Haiti's been suffering from ever since, even though they've had mm-hmm. things in between. Um, about the U.S. going in on a humanitarian mission, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, they cited Trotsky's article from the 1930s, Learn to Think, where Trotsky said, well, 90 times out of 100, or maybe 99 times out of 100, we're going to be opposed to what the bourgeoisie does. But 10 out of 100 times or 1 out of 100 times, we're going to actually support what they're doing, In other words, we're against the police and we're against the state, but we're not against firemen putting out a fire. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the Spartacists were like, well, you know, insofar as the United States has the largest portable desalination plant, namely a U.S. aircraft carrier Mm -hmm. available to provide drinkable water to people who are the victims of an earthquake. How can you oppose the U.S. Navy and Marines going in and giving water to Haitians after an earthquake. You can't. Now, what's interesting is, soon after that, they printed a retraction. And they said, this was our August 4th moment, in which we crossed the class line and betrayed the working class and the people of Haiti to U.S. imperialism. And so we should have been U.S. out, no matter what. Mm. I think their first... The first perspective was right, right? Now, of course, the humanitarian aid doesn't come without the guns. Right. That's also true here, right? In other words, if there's a natural disaster in the United States, the National Guard is going to be there and they're going to be distributing food and water and whatnot, medical supplies, and they're going to be providing services. But they're also going to shoot people if need be. Right. Right. So, you know, again, it's like, We have to be careful about all this. Um, I think that a real socialist party would oppose everything that the government does. Or at least criticize it. Mm -hmm. In other words, would say, you know, that's the least you could do. But, you know, you did it really poorly and you could do it much better. But we don't expect you to do it any better. And the point is to overthrow you because you're never going to do the right thing, really. You know, you're only right. going to do the right thing kind of by accident and which doesn't mean that there aren't well-intentioned people, mm. but it does mean that objectively conditions are such that even well-intentioned people are constrained by circumstance to not ever be able to really do the right thing or what's right. what's, what's called for and what's possible really, you know, in terms of like the potential for socialism. Now, that kind of unremitting oppositional stance has filtered down through the generations to us today, right? So people today, they look back on, like, you know, Lenin and Trotsky and Rosa Luxemburg and August Babel, not one man or one dime for this rotten system, Mm -hmm. right? And they think, oh, I just want to adopt that attitude today. And it's like, but that attitude was premised on a real, tangible, concrete political possibility of overthrowing capitalism and achieving socialism that doesn't exist mm-hmm. today. And so now the very same like position and, and analysis and reasoning just feeds into what would otherwise, you know, in their time had been anarchist or Narodnik kind of nihilism. Right. Right. Mm-hmm. And that, you know, trusted the spontaneity of the people, you know, that you blow up this society and people in their innate goodness will just reconstitute it better. And, you know, there's a kernel of truth to that, but no, right? In other words, the Marxist vision is that the working class has to be organized to be able to take over society.
1: It's you not, have to remember right? that the people are who constituted this society. They are. That's the thing you have to remember. Like,
0: That's their the, liability, the, and it's their advantage.
1: Yeah. But, I mean, it's not as though we're trying to free all the people of the earth from an alien invasion. No, we're freeing all the people of Earth from the society that they built in this half. Here's the third worldism, right? Here's the Mm -hmm. third
0: worldism. Um, Because I think that people do imagine that the left is trying to free the people from an alien invasion. Whether that's capitalists or white people or white straight male patriarchy, settler colonialism, the West, all this crap, right? And it's like, well, no. Right, so that that kind of third worldism, which is really what we inherit from the New Left.
1: I mean, the smart the, the smart for third worldism is not that, but it's that we are looking for the most radical, militant, uh, progressive parts of the working class, and we believe they were they are going to be in the third world. That's isn't
0: that. It, the it smart might, version of it. It might claim to be that, but in practice, it. Liquidated to support for third world nationalists. Right. Right. In other words, capitalism. Yeah. And so, you know, so, you know, I I rag on Howard Zinn, People's History of the United States, in my article, because I'm like, okay, we're dealing with a whole generation of kids now raised on this crap. Right. Right. Oh, the US was founded on colonial, settler violence, and slavery and genocide. And you know, that's what it's built on. And it's like, uh, no, the United States is built on the labor of the working class, right? Including enslaved people, including colonized people, including people who were victims of genocide. Right. Right. Um, in other words, you know, it's, it's, and, and the idea, I mean, of course this sounds fanciful to people, but the the idea is that there is a working class, that would include free white settler colonialist workers, enslaved people, and uh, people who were subject to genocidal violence that all together that's the working class
1: That's a lot the last one's the hardest to grasp because um, you'd have to show that how that uh, their their annihilation uh, fed into or or we're created the working class.
0: We all die
1: yeah but uh yeah i know right. i'm just saying like built was that part world. of the basically the enclosure of of america basically for capital is how you would per- I
0: mean, say that it's it's basically like look obviously you know genocide is just not redeemable right and right whatsoever and and was not necessary in any way like right. at all right mm-hmm. um you know, neither was chattel slavery necessary for capitalism. It was possible for it, but it was not necessary. No.
1: Marx said something a little bit different. He said that without chattel slavery, European capitalist development would never have occurred on the, at least at the rate that it did, you know, that it was reliant.
0: The rate that it did. Okay. So, and that's the tricky part. And you could also say that, a big factor in the dissolution of traditional social relations in Europe was the influx of cheap silver and gold out of the mines of uh, the Western Hemisphere. Mm -hmm. Right. Um, The primitive accumulation of capital. Right. Um, Mm -hmm. Obviously gave a huge spurt to the growth of capitalism. I mean, really bourgeois social relations. Right. But then Mm -hmm. again, so did the black plague. Right. The black plague also right. gave a big spur to the growth of uh, bourgeois social relations in Europe. So, you know, but again, I mean, the disappearance of the Native Americans. I hate to mm-hmm. say this, but even in the United States, a lot of white people are of Native American descent. Yeah. They just are, right? In other words, like the, the Native Americans disappeared, they were absorbed by the white and black and black population right a lot of blacks have Native American ancestry as well and so we are the working class is the inheritor of the vanquished of history and including those who who disappeared quietly Mm -hmm. right in other words and peacefully like not quietly and violently in the sense that no one recorded the horrors you know a lot of a lot of the horrors are unrecorded
2: mm-hmm.
0: but you know less dramatically and you know okay right now the the reason it becomes like third worldism and postmodernism and like cultural imperialism all this mm-hmm. stuff it's like you know look i'm chris catrone living in the united states in 2021 where's my irish culture where's my italian culture it's gone it's replaced by Hollywood culture industry bullshit.
1: That's on the Sopranos, right? The Italian culture. Yeah, <laughs>
0: yeah exactly. Or like Andrew Cuomo or something, mm-hmm. right? You know, yeah. like kisses everyone. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not that Italian. Right. Um, and so, you know, I mean, my family, it's funny, like my parents, um, you know, like everyone else would kiss, kiss, kiss. It, not my family, not my immediate family, because mm-hmm. I think that my parents wanted to be more white than that. hmm. Yeah. I mean, whatever. So, you know, so cultural imperialism, sure. Who's not a victim of it? Right. In other words, the liquidation of culture, culture is, is wiped out. And, you know, I just have to say, you know, culture. Why are we, why are we defending it? What, what's to defend about it? Like, in other words, I'm a gay gay person. You know, traditional culture is just not good. Right. I, I don't I don't mourn its passing at all for anybody Hmm. for anybody and now you could say well you know my family immigrants like they chose to give up their culture as opposed to others who were forced to give up their culture eh why did they come here out of economic compulsion right because if they stayed in Italy and Ireland they would have starved to death
1: right okay I have a a question about your essay I'm going to go to here Uh because I think it might help it might clarify some things so in your essay, you wrote that uh, Fred Halliday, after 9-11, asked uh, who was responsible uh, for the terrorist attack. And he answered that it was the U.S. itself, along with its allies, Saudi Arabia and et cetera, not in the literal sense of like 9-11 being an inside job. Actually, I did read what you wrote, 9-11 truthers, but rather in the profounder way that the U.S. nurtured radical Islamic terrorism, in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union and its local secular nationalist Afghan allies in the 1970s and 80s. But then you're right, but the chickens coming home to roost were not Osama bin Laden's Al Qaeda, but rather the left itself. It was a legacy of the 20th century's left whose price was to be paid now. Mm-hmm. There's an exacting cost to history. So my question is, how was the left, maybe the American left, culpable or implicated in the attacks of 9-11? How were those attacks the cost of the left's historical failure?
0: Um, I would say, and this is why we were just talking about it, that it's the long slide into um, third-worldism, but also mm-hmm. second-worldism. In other words, it was the abdication, and what that means is it's not like we shouldn't be sympathetic to the struggles of the third world or even of the second world. Mm-hmm. but the abdication of the struggle for socialism in the first world and in the United right. States above all.
1: And when did that start to really, be, when did it, how did we abdicate it's that responsibility? Was it after in, world war two?
0: It started in 1924 when Stalin said, there's not going to be a revolution in Germany. Right. Yeah. That's when it started. And, you know, In other words, all the decisions made by the communist movement after that point were predicated on that assumption. Now, you know, thinking third third worldists will answer, well, what are leftists in the third world supposed to do? Wait for revolution in the West? Well, you know, it's not like I'm saying you have to wait for revolution in the West. World history at an objective level is saying you have to wait for revolution in the West. In other words, right. it's not like a choice. Are we are we just sitting on our hands waiting for revolution in the West or not? It's circumstances are such you are waiting for revolution in the West. And not just waiting, maybe you can contribute to it. I mean, after all, there is and there always has been a migratory working class in the world. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, you know, socialists from Africa, the Middle East latin america asia i've met them they come to the u.s they should help us organize a socialist party here
2: Mm
0: -hmm, they should mm -hmm. take their experience skills and contribute to making revolution in the united states Mm
2: -hmm, mm
0: -hmm. right so
1: i'm not going to blame what about the what about the um struggles for just better living conditions that naturally arise uh, in the third world in the, amongst the working class what about
0: yeah. those kinds of
1: movements yeah
0: those kinds of struggles are extremely important. Hmm. I don't think we should expect great things from them any more than we should expect great things from reform struggles here in the United States right right in other words of course people should fight of course.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: but let's, let's be real. But that isn't about, socialism. Right, let's be realistic about what it is, right? In mm-hmm. other words, and maybe, maybe in the United States and in the rest of the world, maybe you do need to be like a Marxist socialist to fight for basic reforms. Maybe you do, right? To fight for them, really fight for them. In other words, to fight for them on the ground level in civil society to wrest concessions from the capitalists and the landlords and whomever regardless of what the law is regardless mm-hmm. of what government policy is mm-hmm. right in other words a lot can be achieved without changing a single thing about government administrative policy or legislation a lot can be changed in reality on the ground regardless of who's in power right i mean there were marxists who were fighting under the nazis living under right. the Nazis. Mm-hmm. They still continue to fight. Right? Are we really going to claim that somehow we can't fight until the Democrats pass this or that legislation? What?
2: Yeah.
1: Well, let me ask you uh, again something that came up earlier. Why did the United States go into Afghanistan after 9-11? What, and how did it relate to the United States' unique role in the world to kind of give order to uh capitalist relations and and for and be the enforcer
0: right so it's a complicated question because of course of course they went in to get al-qaeda and you know exact revenge and prevent another 9-11 right of course they did that um why did they stay
1: well i mean look adolf reed's proposal yeah. of a police action would have been more eff- effective and a, more efficient United Nations authorized it. Yeah, that's what they right, but but it wasn't a, okay. No, but like a police action and NATO, where, where like but okay, Al uh, Taliban offered to turn over Bin Laden before the bombs started dropping. A police action, like like police, like you're investigating a crime, not like police action like in Vietnam, but like uh, you know, coordinated with international bodies to round up the specific terrorists responsible perhaps even cooperating with the taliban diplomatically you know that would have been a much more effective way of actually dealing with al-qaeda than dropping bombs on afghanistan
0: i mean you and i have talked about this previously and you Mm -hmm. know really i have not reinvestigated researched again the circumstances um I think that the Taliban, and I could be wrong, but I think the Taliban temporized and refused ultimately to turn over Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda. They may not have been able to anyway. And probably there was some disagreement among them about it, about doing so. Um, Maybe they did want to do it. And, you know, and the U.S. attacked anyway. Right. Like, I'm not sure exactly about, you know, the details of it.
1: That was what I thought at the time uh-huh and now that the invasion is you know over and that we're withdrawing it is what mainstream uh, you know people relatively mainstream people like Glenn Greenwald and Matt Taibbi are saying
0: they're saying about, that the US didn't give them a chance to turn them over
1: yeah that there was an offer and and that was reported in like the Washington Post right before the invasion well, right. and,
0: so it's a question of okay so let's 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 bracket that because i'm not sure Right, Actually, I'm but I'm
1: just sure. saying, like something other than an invasion with a nation building as the ultimate, as a long term goal, well, okay, and so, uh, ground troops on the ground that could have been done, and might have been more efficient.
2: Let's and, bring
0: in the neocons then. So, okay, we? yeah. Um. So basically, and you know, I'm I have to say that I'm very annoyed, irritated endlessly by the idea that the project for a new American century formulated in the 1990s was somehow greenlit and implemented as a result of 9-11, it was not. Because the project for a new American century was not about the U.S. invading countries. It was not, right? Mm -hmm. It was about the soft power. And so, you know, like, that kind of left demagogy about that stuff. You know, the seamless transition between, like, anti-WTO activism into, like, anti-war on terror activism, there's a lot of fudging involved in that. So, Let's talk about the, like, the neocons. Because I'm not sure the Project for a New American Century is really neocon. It's neoliberal as much as it's neocon. It's Madeleine mm. Albright. It's Democrats. It's mm. not just Republicans. Right. And so... What what did they want to do? The neocons. They wanted to... eliminate the conditions under which... Afghanistan could be used as a platform for international terrorism. Right. In other words, Mm -hmm. you're getting to use a Kamala Harris expression. You're not just dealing with the problem, but with its root causes. Mm. Right. Let's deal with the root causes. And so the root causes is that Afghanistan had fallen apart, was essentially a failed state. And that if it hadn't been a failed state, the Taliban wouldn't have taken it over to begin with. Right. In any way, large parts of the country were controlled by opponents of the Taliban, the the Northern Alliance, blah, blah, blah. Right. So let's overthrow the Taliban, they thought, and let's get rid of the root causes for the 9-11 attack. Um, now, did they expect to establish a liberal democracy? Of course not. Not really. Um, but a more stable regime, right, more responsible to the world community. And frankly, this is how they get everybody on board. It wasn't just bleeding heartism for the victims in New York. Right. It was freeing
1: the women of Afghanistan.
0: Oh, please.
1: Oh, but that was part of it.
0: I know. That's just credulity. That's just ugly naivete. I mean, that's just, please. I know. I mean, maybe, maybe in Kabul. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously a lot of emigrate Afghan capitalists came back after the overthrow of the Taliban. You know, they came back with a kind of more secular social and political agenda for Afghanistan, right, under, under the protection of the United States, you know, as part of this nation-building effort. And, you know, they were not able to hold the country together any better than they were under uh, Soviet intervention, right? Because obviously mm-hmm. the Soviets intervened on behalf of native Afghan, like, reformers, social reformers, secular mm-hmm. nationalist-type people, Right. Mm-hmm. Um, basically, capitalist developers, I would say. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, so then the question is okay, well, was it a mistake or not? Because that's what the capitalists are thinking. You know, they're thinking, okay, it was reasonable to have tried, right, to do something about Afghanistan and not just about Al Qaeda and the Taliban. Mm-hmm. We tried and we failed and we learned our lesson and now it's time to come home. That's Biden. And, you know, and Biden, you know, is claiming and maybe rightfully so that he knew from the beginning that he can't do this, that he can't really nation build. Yeah. Right. When he was in the Senate or whatever, maybe, maybe he knew that. I mean, he is the Vietnam generation. Maybe they know that. Actually, Mm -hmm. maybe Trump knows that he's the Vietnam generation, too. And Trump would always say that the worst mistake that the U.S. ever made was the war on terror. And the second worst mistake was the Vietnam War. Mm-hmm. That's what he says. Right. So that generation, I mean, you know, look, they are attuned to you don't want to, like, get into a quagmire. You don't want to tr- try to do something that's not really possible. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and certainly if you try and fail, you cut your losses. Right. You don't keep leaving yeah. forever. So, I mean, I think, though, that the U.S. looking at Afghanistan was looking at Pakistan, India, Russia, China, Iran. In other words, it was really looking at the fact that, you know, India and China have gone into shooting wars, including relatively recently. Mm. Russia and China have had shooting wars too. Soviet Union and China, they had little, Mm. you know, these crazy frontier skirmishes over, like, the tundra, Mm. you know, or in the Himalayas. Like, you know, it's kind of like what do you make of that? Well, wait a second though. India and Pakistan and China and Russia are nuclear armed countries. yeah, I know. You really don't want shooting wars, right.
1: One of my f- earliest short stories was about the nu- nuclear Armageddon, and it started between it
0: starts India in and Pakistan India. yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah I mean absolutely right. And so now, you know, I'm reminded of my of my Indian and Pakistani friends.
2: Who say,
0: well, why, why is, why does Pakistan want to control Afghanistan? So there's a reason. It's called a uh, strategic depth. That's the term that they use, meaning that they want some place that their military can retreat to if India invades them.
2: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: Why does India want to control Afghanistan? To prevent the Same. Pakistanis from having a place to retreat to if they invade Pakistan.
2: Right, right, right,
0: right. So, you know, this is very real. It's mm. very real. In other words, it's active strategic planning by nuclear armed militaries who have their sights set on each other right now. Right. Right. What is the U.S. interest in that? Preventing any of that from happening. Hmm us is interested in preventing that from happening the us does not want india and pakistan to go to war does not want india and china to go to war right right doesn't want russia and china to go to war they also don't want them to cooperate against the united states but they also don't want them to go to war right the us does not want war it does not right so here's the other myth that the US are these warmongers, you know, who are just out to like kindle any conflict and start any war, you know? No. No. No, 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 no. No. Not at all. So that's the other problem. Now so we don't we live in a world where wars are gonna happen. They're gonna happen because of capitalism. Not because of interested parties. Of course, there are interested parties. There are war profiteers and whatever. But the weapons manufacturers, they make money whether you shoot the guns or not, right?
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Especially in the United States. I mean, come on. The United States keeps the arms manufacturers happy. The, you don't have to go to war to, to line their pockets. Yeah, no. yeah. Right? Um, so, you know, I mean, the bottom line is the United States does not want war.
1: Right. But it's very hard to sell a ground war to the American public on the basis of holding off a war between India and Pakistan. You know, Is by, it a ground
0: war? In other words, they well, knocked out the Taliban and then they occupied the country and they bled a little bit. I mean, they didn't they didn't suffer. The U.S. military didn't suffer casualties in Afghanistan the way they did in Iraq. Right. They didn't. Right. In terms of the ongoing occupation, right? So in mm-hmm. Iraq, you know, uh, they were suffering just a lot more. Right. Um, right. And, you know, so.
1: But nonetheless, it would have been. I mean, obviously, going after Al Qaeda was a reason given to the American public um, and holding and and and, and preventing securing. Yeah. Right. And uh securing some sort of precarious balance of of conflict in, in, the, in American the middle east doesn't in... care
0: about that but they should in other words like look the elite the technocrats the obamas the bidens the hillary clintons who are like yeah you know wikileaks should not reveal our email correspondence because the public doesn't understand mm-hmm. right and they sh- the public should just leave it to us. Our decisions are the right ones. We're the informed people. We know what we're doing. you know. So American mm-hmm. public, please just go about your business. Don't pay too much attention to what we're doing. We know what we're doing.
1: Mm-hmm. Right? Uh, it's like the IT guy who comes to fix your computer. It's like I He mean, doesn't yeah. want to explain this how it works.
0: Really <laughs> believe. I mean, right. when they negotiated the trade deals, Obama, with Europe and the Trans-Pacific Partnership, Written into those deals, the Obama administration, there was a secrecy clause. They said to the other governments, you are not allowed to reveal the details of this treaty because the public will not understand and it will be subject to right-wing demagogy both in your country and in our country. And so you are, if you sign this treaty, you are forbidden from revealing the details of our agreement. <laughs> right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mean, it might even be rational. Yeah, you don't want right-wing demagogy. You don't want things taken the wrong way. Do people need to know the details? I guess not. You know? Now, but that is their attitude. That really is their attitude. And, Mm -hmm. you know, as it turns out, they make mistakes. As it turns out, they're not so competent. Now, is it because they're incompetent? or is it because of an intractable capitalist condition you know that you can just manage the chaos you know more or less and often less
1: i i tend to think the second yeah. thing is true you know right? yeah and i mean socialists are but but the, but back to the yeah. left and the problem with at the beginning of after 9/11 was that the uh, left wasn't aware of Didn't allow itself to be aware of just what the managers were even trying to do. Yeah. Right. They made up lies
0: about it instead. It's a new Christian crusade. It's Islamophobia. Mm. It's like, you know, if the US wanted to launch an anti Muslim global crusade, it wouldn't look like the war on terror. Right. It would be.
1: I mean, it's clearly not Islamophobia. Yeah. Because George Bush was one of the people. Who was leading the crusade against Islamophobia? You know, and because
0: them. look, the the, the fact of the matter,
1: Islamophobia is all about that kind of rhetoric. Is all about the people hate each other, uh-huh. Inst- internally. The domestic population hates each other, and and the native population uh, can't be trusted to act civilized. After oh, sure. you know,
0: right? I That's mean, that- but but even so, like after nine eleven. There was some um, anti Muslim violence. Oh, yeah. On, on the part of civilians and on the part of the authorities. The police, you know, the police did things like set them up, you know, like create terror cells out of like hapless Muslim immigrants, um, you know. And
1: right. But that, but like, all that stuff about less than we capturing Is- Islamic people and taking right. away their rights and throwing them yeah. in prison, yeah, that all happened. But that wasn't anti Not Islam. It was, it happened, but it, it, it was also like, just very much a continuity of Bill Clinton's war on terror and war on civil liberties.
0: And
1: and we can see now it's aimed at the domestic population. Yeah. You know, not on a huge scale, but in a way that's serious, I think. So we have to wonder about the future of bourgeois rights in the United States under the both, under both parties. You know, we have to wonder about.
0: Absolutely. Yeah. No, I mean, I think that, you know, yes socialists would stand for the civil liberties of muslims and others against you know would stand for the civil liberties of fringe right-wing people from being abused by the government Mm -hmm. right in other words on principle right right you don't want the police setting people
2: up right
1: right and Um, you don't want people being held indefinitely in detention without charges and being judged in the courts of public opinion, which happened to, like, I don't know, it was like the Portland Six or something, these these uh, uh, Islamic uh, I- immigrants that mm-hmm. may have had some tenuous connection to yeah. and were probably FBI, uh, you know, probably FBI informants set, set them up to begin yeah. with, you know, all yeah. that kind of stuff. Yeah.
0: I mean, you know, what people have to understand is that, you know, you create an anti-terrorism unit in the FBI or in the local police department and then people's careers are dependent on them showing results and they'll, right. they'll they'll make it up just to be able to say i did something right. give me a raise give me a promotion
1: there was a right. christmas tree bombing plot yeah. that involved like seven like here in portland like involved like seven fbi agents and one teenager <laughs> right
0: know? and it, yeah. you know and so it's just a bureaucratic logic and you know it's 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 awful Right. And so that's why the war on terror should have been opposed per se, mm. um, on principle. Now, w- would there have been a world in which there wasn't a war on terror after 9-11? Probably not. Right. In other words, this is, this is what the government does. It tries to do these things. And of course, along the way, it tries to, you know, it spreads it's mission creep, you know, mm. it, it sort of metastasizes, It it starts taking on other problems that could be, you know, in some plausible way connected with the original mandate. You know, I mean, so, I mean, but again, really, Afghanistan, um, it was wrong from the standpoint of a socialist left it was a mistake from the standpoint of the capitalists and their politicians, right? Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, the other thing about the bureaucracy, so not only do they promote themselves through these things, but also people compete with each other within the bureaucracy. And so, I mean, it's almost like Tsarist Russia, where, like, one group of police are setting up like a terrorist attack that another group of police doesn't know about and shit happens. Right. I mean, and you know, people botch things on purpose to make their competitors look bad so they can get, get the promotion instead of someone else. They Mm -hmm. undermine each other. And Mm -hmm. meanwhile, the population is this, the victim. Okay.
1: Well, you said something in your essay about how, Chomsky didn't think that the war in Vietnam was a loss for the United States, but a a long-term victory. And you kind of suggest something might also be true about Afghanistan. It seems to me that the if you think of it in terms of the necessity to attempt to police the world and maintain some sort of uh, unbalanced balance around the world through various kinds of actions, then, you know, the... Afghanistan invasion and occupation was ultimately a failure, but not a mistake. Like, or, or like, just like they if you're treating a patient, see
0: some kind of success. So yeah, I mean, yeah. Like if
1: you're treating someone who has cancer and you use te- techniques to hold off the cancer for six months, but then they die. Well, you held it off for six months. That's considered right? a
0: success.
2: Yeah.
1: Right. Yeah. And in, in Afghanistan, you had 20 years of occupation, okay and now things are turning back into chaos but we'll come up with something else now but look that treatment worked for a long time that's
0: what some of them are saying they're saying well at least we prevented another 9-11 attack for 20 years and (laughs) you know i mean i think maybe even beyond that if the taliban want to stay in power maybe they're not going to let isis and al-qaeda operate in afghanistan right right i mean that's at least a possibility if they want to stay in power right yeah um I mean again, it's the question of overreach. You know hindsight is 2020. And so would the US have done better to deal with these things at a distance rather than through occupation? right? And uh, so, you know, will they will they do a smarter war on terror, you know, drone strikes? forever. Like, you know, starting under Obama and continuing under Trump, that's what it became. It became less boots on the ground and more drone strikes. And, you know, which is less of a risk to the United States, less of a liability. It's kind of invisible. It just goes on without the media really covering it or anyone really hearing about it. Um, You know, that's a possibility. Um, You know, can they work through proxies? You know, um, the problem with working through proxies is that, of course, the proxies have more connection to local powers than they do to the United States. Right. So the Northern Alliance was Russia and India. Mm. Basically, Um, the Taliban are Pakistan and maybe China. Maybe, Mm -hmm. you know, and maybe China will pacify Afghanistan better than the United States was able to do because Pakistan depends on China to keep India at bay. I mean, you know, it's this kind of stuff and it really is a a kind of deeply opaque and ugly world, right. Of, you know, moral ambiguity, certainly political ambiguity, geopolitical ambiguity. Mm -hmm. And, you know, so again, the left should be cognizant of this reality. Right. In other words, it shouldn't. I mean, I guess there's a kind of propaganda point of of, you know, saying the U.S. is responsible for everything. Sure. In some way, you could say that. In another way, though, responsible for what? Responsible for every little crime that takes place in the developing world? Not really. Responsible for suppressing socialism in the United States? Definitely. Definitely.
1: Thanks for watching this Zero Books video. If you enjoyed it, subscribe to this channel and click on the notifications bell so that you'll be alerted whenever we release a new video. You should also consider supporting us on Patreon. Our patrons get access to our Inside Zero Books podcast every week and can get access to the Zero Books Book Club and help us to continue making online content from the left.